my name is Eva, and I just finished watching the TV series House of the Dragon. This is a spoiler review of the penultimate episode of this series. And what did we see? The king has died, and Team Green are eager to keep this a secret until they have their business sorted. Alicent, who in the last episode mistook Viserys' utterings about Aegon the Conqueror to be an announcement of Aegon their son as king, confides this to her father, who in turn reveals at the small council that he, the Lannisters, and several others have for years been planning to put Aegon on the throne anyway. This is news to Alicent and for Lord Beesbury, who falls as the first victim of Team Green's usurpation. Alicent tries and fails in securing the support of Renice, who is kept locked in a room in the Red Keep. The episode ends as Alicent would wish it, with Aegon crowned with the crown of Aegon the Conqueror, and as he and his family take in the jubilation of the large crowd, Renice bursts forth on her dragon, Melisse, from beneath the boards, having escaped her locked room with the help of Eric Cargill, and she now flies off to parts unknown, leaving a destroyed coronation behind. Surely not a good omen. So, to quote Daenerys Targaryen from Season 7, Episode 1, shall we begin? This was a splendidly crafted story, and this time, instead of seeing wide shots of great halls, we instead saw close-up shots of empty spaces, as if we the viewers were getting a secret peek into places where information is sold, is born, and is passed on. This was not the great action scene, as we might have come to expect from penultimate scenes from the classic Game of Thrones. However, this was arguably still a battle episode, perhaps the hardest part of the battle, that of securing the most optimal position when battle is joined with an enemy of unknown strength. In this episode... Positions were granted, positions were gained, and positions changed in the aftermath of the death of Viserys, who somewhat tragically is given the name Viserys the Peaceful. He may have smiled at this, but however much he wanted peace, he himself never actually secured it. This episode was like the very last minutes of silence before the storm, or, to use another quote, this was the end of the beginning, and it played out so beautifully in that scene of the small council. I reflected on two themes during these tense 57 minutes, and I'm going to break up this talk in two parts, each revolving around its own theme. The first part revolves around the theme, power and fire, and the second part revolves around the theme, actions and thoughts. Alison comes across as a confounding and yet very conflicted woman. Alison cries, earnestly, I believe, at the news of her husband's death. And now she will, with righteous grief, carry out what she thinks are her husband's dying wishes. As I talked about last time, his words that she mistook absolutely delivered her from having to look at her own feelings. 
for now she acts merely on the words of the late king. This empowers her to speak against the men at the small council, and it gives her power to go against her father. Yet every time she does so, every time she shows power, her father tries to bring her down by pointing at what he perceives at her more womanly virtues. For example, as she declares to Otto that Aegon will be crowned with Aegon the Conqueror's crown and wield Blackfire the Conqueror's sword, her father, instead of replying, oh, what a good plan, he simply looks at her and says, you look so like your mother in certain lights. It seems that when Alicent speaks with fire, her power is contested and ultimately bashed. Larys Strong is the creepiest example of this. When he offers information, he only does so if Alicent will show her feet in a sexual manner. From the moment she removes her shoes, we as a viewer feel that awkwardness of the situation, and our emotions go from slight confusion to outright revulsion. Now, sexual preferences aside, and they may be wide and varied, Larry Strong's unspoken demand comes from a place of power. It is he who demands, and it is she who has to do nothing but be commanded. For as he said in this episode, as he has said in other episodes, well, I will do what you want, if you wish it. In other words, if anything he does should come out, all he has to do is to say that Alison ordered it. He simultaneously kindles her fire and he puts it out where it might live beyond his control. If I do have a little nitpick about this scene, it would be that we as a viewer perfectly understood the very unhealthy power dynamics between these two, even as she took off her stockings. And seeing him pleasuring himself made him, well, for me, made him far less mysterious than he has been until now. He is still dangerous, yes, but not as intriguing as he was before, because it's now, oh, okay, he's a creep. In other words, I sometimes miss the elegance of Varys and the reserved cynicism of Littlefinger. But, my nitpick aside, this is a scene that so easily could have been overplayed or even cast aside in favour of rushing to the action. Again, these smaller sessions in which people tell us not only who they are, but what they have become through their interactions with others, is what makes House of the Dragon a noteworthy drama. Another character of power and fire is Kristen Cole. He accidentally kills Lord Beesbury, but the very fact that it is unintentional makes me wonder if Cole has become a loose cannon. It is with considerable pent-up anger, after all, that he orders Beesbury to sit down. Cole seems completely untouched by the consequences of his violent actions and also by his Lord Commander's order to stand down. There is, as previous episodes have revealed, a cold, simmering fire in the heart of Kristen Cole, and every so often that cold, simmering fire becomes a red-hot one that leads to death 
It led to the death of Geoffrey and now of Lord Beesbury. Alicent declares that Kristen Cole will become Lord Commander of the King's Guard. And I wonder what will that power do to his emotions? I do also think that Kristen Cole is the embodiment, however imperfect, of the chivalric knight. And trust George R. R. Martin to cast that harsh, blinding light on the contradictions inherent in being a knight of true virtue who also slashes and kills his way through life. I do think, though, that Cole genuinely loves Alicent, and her words to him, whatever you feel for me, and then after a pause she adds, as a queen, is her acknowledgement that Cole does whatever she asks out of more than mere duty. But those two are a perfect match. She will allow him to love her at a distance, and he loves her even more for her not asking him to be anything but chaste. The absolute embodiment in this episode of Power and Fire was once again Renice Valarion. I just have to keep on singing the praises of Eve Best, the actor who plays this character. She can show grief and anger at the same time and still keep us guessing what is on her mind. Alicent, for all that she has grown, is no match for Renice as she goes to ask for her support. There is power in that room and it resides with Renice. It is also Renice who brings the ultimate weapon of fire to the crowning. She could have burned all to the ground but chose not to. I have heard some be disappointed about that, but I find her decision not to burn to align completely with her character. Firstly, kinslaying in Westeros is a grave sin, so that alone might stay her hand. And while dragon action is always a spectacle worth watching, Renice is not hot-headed. At the Great Council, when she was not chosen queen, she did not stump off or call her banners to war. When Vaymond Valerian confronted her in the previous episode, she did not lose her temper. And nor did she in this scene. And yet her power, her power of empathy with another mother, stayed her hand. For her gaze was directed at Alicent in that moment when she could otherwise have said Dracaris. For my part, I think she looked at Alicent to say, you too can break out of that prison that you so steadfastly refused to leave. Now Aegon, that unkind boy, has grown into a cruel young man, and now he is crowned king with all the power that that entails. He is the son of the house of fire and blood, and the realm better prepare for what he might do now that power has been vested in his own person. Some people, like his brother Aemon, might long for the power a crown would give. But Aegon is dazzled by the trappings of power, like the adulation he receives as he raises his sword, and such people may turn out to be the most dangerous of all. They play with fire with no thought of the consequences. I really look forward to seeing where the series will take him, 
but with the hints to his character, I don't imagine it will be anywhere savoury. As the saying goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The next theme I picked out in this episode was actions and thoughts. It seems that Otto has for years been thinking one thing about Aegon while acting quite differently towards Alicent, i.e. not telling her his plans. And so he is actually lying when he claims that their hearts are as one. His thoughts are, as they ever were, so much farther in the future than even his closest allies and friends are ever aware. And I wonder if a person like Miseria is aware of that, for her thoughts are on immediate action. She will give up the location of Egon in exchange for a promise from Otto to look into the child fighting pits. Her actions align with her thoughts, but Otto's answer, I will remember that it was you, can be read as a threat rather than a promise. His thoughts are very far from the actions that he portrays. By the way, I don't think Miseria is dead after her house was set on fire. Certainly, she is very far from dead in the books. And after all, there is a whispering network that needs a leader. It might be her who resumes her leadership of her network. Or it could be Larry Strong who then takes it over. The now former Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Westerling. He has been dead for a decade in the books, so now it's anybody's guess what the series will do with him. I think he will survive and rally support for Rhaenyra. I mean, what else can he do? Actions and thoughts will, it seems, separate the two identical twins, Arik and Eric. For one thought about the consequences of putting Aegon on the throne, while the other put the action of swearing an oath of fealty above whatever thoughts he might have had about Egon. To round off this talk, I will just mention six bullet points. These are six random thoughts I had. Number one, the sighting of one of Egon's children, born out of wedlock, who just sat there, crouched behind the fighting pits. If that wasn't a sight to break my heart, Oh my goodness, it was horrific, and to think that Aegon might even be betting on his own child. But since they pointed him out in this episode, I wonder if Aegon's children will come into play later, both his legitimate and his illegitimate children, when they come to be in need of dragon riders, as it has been established that dragon riders in Westeros must have Targaryen blood. Number two, the absolute perfection of the cinematography as Hightower pressures the lords to swear allegiance to Egon. The camera slowly pans down from behind the Iron Throne and lingers suggestively on a sword until it finds Hightower. And it is he the camera then lingers on as the words, Long live the king, are said. Interesting. Number three. Somebody needs to start writing all of Helena's words down, or at least have someone, you know, follow her around as she is sprouting out prophecies. Most people took her saying, a beast beneath the boards, to refer to Renice. And that might well be true. 
However, there is an argument to be made that she might have meant Egon, for he too was crouched beneath the boards when he was hiding. And while Helena has been portrayed as rather ethereal until now, her behavior as he was crowned was very much a reaction of the present. She was intensely uncomfortable and could hardly bear to look at him. Number four, those child pits. That was the worst I have seen in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, and I think we've seen a lot. Number five, as I said last time, the fact that we saw Lord Caswell so prominently last episode meant that he was at risk. And yes, it turned out that he was not long for this world, as his allegiance to Rhaenyra was difficult to hide. Honestly, are there any more actually good people left in Westeros? And finally, Renice in full armour, riding Melisse, the queen who absolutely should have been. Next week is the series finale. I can't wait to see how everything unfolds. We all know that the Dance of the Dragons is coming, but it will be interesting to see where they end off next week. In the books, things take a dramatic turn after Aegon is crowned, and Rhaenyra's reaction is just as hot-headed as it ever was when she was young. So I really look forward to seeing these things play out. I look forward to seeing the actors giving it all and the great directing that has proven to be a spectacular voyage of great drama, great action and great character moments. See you next time. I have been Eva and thanks so much for listening.